good. If you'll turn to uh, Colossians chapter 4, we're going to read uh, just two verses there in a couple minutes to get us started, and then we're going to jump back and spend a chunk of time in, in Colossians 3 today. But um, today we're, go- we're going to talk about how to love our neighbors, particularly those who we are not naturally maybe friends with, naturally drawn to. You know, some of them may be acquaintances, some of them may be enemies, but we are... Um, uh, we're going to look at that topic today. You know, there will always be people that we're more inclined to be friends with. Those are, are usually people who look like us, who talk like us, who dress like us, who smell like us, who eat like us, and all those sorts of things. We tend to be drawn to people like us. But we aren't called to love only people who are like us. We're called to love everyone, even our enemies. And I think that it should reflect, uh, as we think about the church, the, this doctrine of, of love should be reflected in the body of Christ and in the church. And and so it should reflect, uh, the church should reflect what we know is true of the kingdom of God. That in the kingdom of God are people from every tongue and tribe and nation and language. Um, And that means that as a church grows and increases in health, uh, it should start becoming, it's grounded more in in the gospel, it should start becoming more diverse in its looks and language and clothing and smells and food and, and all of those things. And so today we're going to start by reading, like I said, just two short verses here in, in Colossians 4. We're going to read verses 5 and 6 and then kind of jump over to Colossians 3 and, and see what it says about how we should clothe ourselves as Christians. We should put off some things and put on some things. So we're going to look at, at what those things are in, in light of this passage today. All right, so we're going to start with Colossians chapter 4 verses 5 and 6. It says, uh, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we, we desire, we know that it's your will for us that the gospel work itself out in our lives into the lives of those around us, into the things going on around us, that your truth might work in and through us. Um, but yet we, we struggle with that so often. We pray today that as we come to your word, you'd give us wisdom, you'd convict us of sin, uh, and you would change our will even if necessary to help us to live faithfully with you, loving you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, and loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. Help us to do that for you and for your glory. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so as we we start with these, like I said, these two short verses here in Colossians 4, we see sort of a broad general command here. In verse 5 here, he says, you know, walk in wisdom. And so what he's saying is we're, he's going to tell us here, what's going to follow here is going to be information about how to walk in wisdom. He's going to tell us what wisdom looks like in a sort. Okay, so walk in wisdom in what way? So in this sense, it says walk in wisdom towards outsiders. All right, outsiders to what? Well, I think probably primarily outsiders to our faith, but maybe even outsiders to our culture, uh, to the things going around. Basically, people who are different from us. And it may be very, it may come in, in, to, in play in very different ways. I think, you know, specifically uh, outsiders to our faith, but I think in general it's applied here even broadly as we, as we look back to chapter 3 in a minute, we'll see that. Um, and so he says, to walk wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Meaning that there are people who are outsiders, particularly when it comes to faith, who we want to become insiders. 
And we only have this lifetime, whatever life God gives them, to make that happen. So make, you know, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of our time. Then look at verse 6. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. All right, so remember, we're talking to people who aren't necessarily like us, who have differences from us, outsiders from our sort of our tribe, our circle. How do we approach them? We should let our speech be gracious, as opposed to being harsh, seasoned with salt, which implies that our interactions should be lively, be interesting and stimulating. We aren't just putting up with people around us. We're actually engaging the people around us in an interesting and stimulating way. That's the call here. We don't, you know, we, we don't shut them down or tune them out because their opinions or their beliefs are different. We don't exclude them from our lives and conversations. We're actually to do the opposite of that. We're to make sure that they think back on our interaction in the same way that they would remember this flavorful, tasty, salty meal that they've enjoyed. You, know, you leave a restaurant and you just had this great meal. What do you do? You probably tell people, I had the best meal at Bob's Burger Shack. I don't know, whatever. You know, we, we share that news. It's unoffensive news. It's encouraging news. It's If you like burger, you can get a burger. It's great. People should leave our conversation with that sort of feeling. I just had the best conversation with this person I didn't expect to have a great conversation with, in a sense. Because we're outsiders to each other. Because if they're outsiders to us, we're probably outsiders to them possibly, likely. And so if our speech towards them as we engage with them is gracious, seasoned with salt, then we ought, it ought to leave that way. Then he says also, so that you may know how you ought to answer each other. So this command assumes that the Christians here in Colossae, and the letter to the Colossians is written to the believers in the city of Colossae. He's, the assumption is that the Christians here in this city are involved in their community, not living in some holy huddle separated from the things that are going on in their town and their, and their environment around them. They're actually engaged with people outside of their tribe, their circle, their bubble. They're actually engaged with, with those. And so they're interacting here in a meaningful way with them. And so the, the reality is we all interact with outsiders. We all shop and dine and do all the things, just going through life, going to schools. But we're constantly in contact with people. But are we interacting with them? Are we loving them? Are we engaging with the people around us? Or are we just happening to be in the same spaces as them? And that's the, that's the thing here. Because I think what we see here in Colossians is a call to deeper interaction, to actually being a part of the lives of other people. He says, you know, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The assumption here is that if we spend time with people outside of our cultural bubble, out of our tribe, out of our belief system or whatnot, what's going to happen is worldviews are going to collide. At some point, one of us is going to say something that makes the other person go, well, that doesn't make sense. That's wrong. That's different. That's whatever it is. Of course, we want to be gracious and salty with our conversation, so we've got to be careful in our responses. But the wisdom, uh, the thing that's going on here is that in those situations where our worldview collides, the wisdom that he's given us here is that we should know our neighbors well enough to be able to communicate with them about our differences in a winsome way. 
That means the call here is to actually get to know people, to understand them, to, to be able to communicate in a way that they would hear the truth that we have to share. Because we believe we have the truth of the gospel. We want to communicate that when we have the opportunity. And so the, the thing here, the command here, the wisdom that's being shared here is live wisely in such a way that when you interact with people, you'll actually be able to communicate with them, which isn't always natural across tribal boundaries. We might speak different dialects of sort, even in our own community, even with our own neighbors. We use language that maybe they don't use. They probably use some language that we don't use. We've got to get to know each other to be able to communicate. So there's an investment here that he's calling us to, to invest in the lives of people around us. And so we got to take time to get to know their personalities and their interests and their struggles and the places where there's friction in our worldviews so that when the questions about our differences come up, we're ready and able to winsomely communicate about those things. We go, okay, well, that makes sense. But this also, as we're going to talk today, we're going to kind of keep hitting two touch points here with our actual neighbors and our virtual neighbors. This also is true for people that we communicate with on social media and other places that we may not actually physically know, but we may, in our time, in our day and age, spend more time with than we do our actual physical neighbors. And so these things go for our virtual neighbors as well. Are we actually taking time to get to know people? Or are we just engaged online with truth bombing people or something, which may or may not be true even from our point, but just sharing things and sharing things and sharing things, thinking that that's going to beat people into coming to our side. But look, I, I'm convinced that no one on the Internet has ever actually had their life changed by some rant about something that they, they're already opposed to. It's not when most of the things we see aren't winsome. They aren't <clears throat> encouraging. They aren't trying to understand. They're just shouting from the mountaintop somewhere, look how I'm right and everyone else in the world is wrong. All right, I'm getting ahead of myself. All right, um, we'll get back to that in a minute. All right, I've approached this sermon today a little bit backwards this morning because what I've done is I've given you the application from Colossians 4 before I give you the wisdom of Colossians 3 that leads us to living it out this way. So what we're going to do is we're going to back up and look at Colossians 3 here. We're going to go back and see the things here that hinder us from being able to relate to people in this wise and salty way. All right, so let's look at Colossians 3. We're going to start in verse 5. We're actually, by the end, we'll back up all the way to verse 1 here, but we're going to start in verse 5. All right, so in verse 5, Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And he says, what? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. All right, so verse 5 here contains sins that most of us in our tribe, in our circle, in our bubble will go, yeah, those are sins. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. We all go, yep, sinners, they deserve the wrath of God. We cheer when we read it. We go, yep, no question about that. Go get them, God. These evil sinners all around us because, you know, none of us struggle with sexual immorality, immorality, purity, you know. But the reality is in our culture, because those things aren't approved and aren't accepted, we tend to fight fairly well, hopefully, against those things. 
Not always. But we tend to do okay. And so, you know, the, the really bad sins are those we don't struggle with, right? And so we've got a list of things here. That not all of us, but most of us have done okay with. Or at least when we do these things, we repent of them and admit. We go, oh, wait, that's really bad. I should run from that. But in verse 6, we get, you know, he says, like I said, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And so we go, you know, yeah, we have no problem agreeing the wrath of God is coming for these things. Now, next week, we're going to look at another issue, and we're going to see how we should be compassionate towards those who struggle and, and not self-righteous with those who struggle. We'll, we'll spend a lot of time next week talking about, about that issue. But our desire here as we think about this, we think about the people around us or even ourselves who are struggling with these things, this outward sin, this sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry, these things. We've got to fight the temptation to go, yeah, God, get them. Because our reaction as believers who understand the grace of God is real and changes lives is we should go, God, rescue them from your wrath. When we see those who are destroying their lives, their families, their culture, our culture affecting us and our lives and our bubble and our things, where our tendency is to go, get away from me. And God hit them. But the Christian response should actually be, Come near to us. May we love you. That God might rescue you. And you may escape the wrath that you deserve. And that we deserve. Because none of us are actually immune from any of these things. Remember because Jesus says, You have heard that you should not commit adultery. But I tell you that if you have lust in your heart, you're guilty of sexual immorality. Uh, so what you're saying is it's me too, all of us. Yes, we're all guilty. We'll say that in a minute because we get to verse, verse 7, which says, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. So there's a sense in which all of us were rescued from outward displays of, of sinfulness. And so we've got to remember where we come from. That helps us in our humility in approaching people graciously and wisely and salty, right? All right, verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Now this verse, we're about to read a list here that makes us a little more uneasy because these are sins that we're probably more comfortable with, even though we shouldn't be. But, it, and for that reason, we're less likely to outright condemn those who struggle with these things. These are more acceptable sins. There's a danger in this, right? In approaching these things. Here's what he says. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Okay. We're quick to look at those who struggle with sexual immorality and impurity and go, well, that's bad. <clears throat> But those of us who have some anger and some wrath and some malice and a little slander and some gossip in our lives, we go, is it really hurting anybody? I mean, yeah, a little bit, but it's not like I'm out doing those other things. And yet Paul puts them all right here next to each other and says, they're all sin. They all deserve the wrath of God. 
for the wages of sin is death. And so we're, we struggle with this sort of stuff a little bit. So here's what we learn. When we love people rightly and put to death these things, our entire outlook on life changes, particularly on how we love our neighbor. He said in verse 11, he says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now here he's talking about people who believe, who come to faith, who are, you know, who are part of the community now, but they're all different. Because what happens in the church is we all come from different tribes, in a sense, into one new tribe that should be diverse in its makeup. It is diverse in its makeup when we think about the global church. People from every tongue, and tribe, and nation, and language, as we talk about, make up the kingdom of God. And so when we, what we see here is when we put off the old self, we start to see that everyone, no matter what they've struggled with, no matter where they've been, whether it's sexual immorality or anger and pride and covetousness, and we start getting all these things, and we start to see that everyone is worthy of being accepted by God and by us. Not because we've been good, because we're made in the image of God. We, when we see the beauty of this diversity, we stop with the racism and the culturalism and the shame about the language and accents and smells and the foods and the clothing. These things transition from being things that we scoff at for being different to things that we celebrate being diverse. That's how the gospel should work in our culture. Should work in a diverse way to the point that we celebrate diversity instead of being suspicious of diversity. This is how the gospel works itself out in our lives. We celebrate the things that are, uh, we come to understand that any culture or tribe or language or nation aren't intrinsically better than another. We realize and remember that we're all imperfect. We're all affected by the fall. We're all in need of redemption, yet we're all made in the image of God and saved by the redemption that comes through the same blood. God doesn't save people from different cultures in different ways. He saves humanity through the blood of Jesus Christ. Look at the examples here that Paul gives of people who are equal in Christ. He says, Greek and Jew, racial backgrounds. The people reading this would have understood that to mean everyone, Jews and Gentiles, basically. Uh, circumcised and uncircumcised, people from religious backgrounds. In the church, we have a tendency to go, wait, you didn't jump through all those hoops. Are you really all the way in? You know, remember that in, that in this day, the Jews were saying, well, if you want to be a really good Christian, the Jewish Christians, some of them were saying, if you want to be a really good Christian, you've got to be a really good Jew first. Remember, Paul was saying, circumcised or uncircumcised, we're all one in Christ. Yeah, that's, that no longer matters. What matters is your faith. What is your faith and trust in? Whether you've been circumcised or uncircumcised, doesn't matter in a long way. Barbarian and Scythian, these are references to violent people groups so if you look at their history, you go, I'm not sure I want my kids hanging out with that guy who's been murdering people. But yet he becomes a believer, he repents of his sin, he comes in the church. Is he part of us or not part of us? Paul's saying here, the Scythians and the barbarians are here. They're in our tribe now. We live and do life together. Right? We get uneasy when it starts getting real. Slave or free, your social status, 
your cultural stigma that's attached to those things. What he says is that when people come to faith in Christ, they come to the church. They come in the church with the church people. We all are one in Christ. Christ is all and in all. There are no barriers. And to say, because of your past sin, you can't really be accepted in our circle, what we're saying is our self-righteousness overrules the grace of God. Because the humility that comes with the gospel says we're all sinners, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, and we're all redeemed, fully redeemed by the blood of Christ. You know, if we were to move to another country, and look, I'm not getting into immigration issues in our culture right here. That's not my intention. I'm not... Your minds are going to be tempted to go that way. We're not going down that road. If we were to move to another culture, assuming that we're going to move legally, we'll just assume that in this, for this example, would we be frustrated if the locals there expected us to immediately drop all the things about us that were uniquely American? No, we'd be so frustrated. We would go, wait, this is who I am. This is how I've grown up. And maybe in our pride we go, and, and my way is better than every other way, so you should just accept, you got to accept me how I am. But do we offer that the same grace to people who come here? Who join our culture? Who join our people? You know, we would think it's foolish for them to do that, but we often expect people who move in our culture should start dressing like us and, and speaking with our accent and using our language immediately, doing all of these things to assimilate into our culture immediately, yet I don't think we would be as quick to, we would want grace in assimilating into a new culture ourselves. And so we've got to be careful. We've got, we talk about racism and other issues in our culture enough that we've, you know, we've wrestled with a lot of these things and we're inclined to be accepting, particularly when it comes to areas of race and some other things because we know they're sort of hot button issues. They're on the surface. They're being dealt with in a public sense. We hear about it on TV and in books and, and those things, uh, and, and in church even. But I wonder if the same is true across class lines. Are, are we willing to make a place at our table for those who are truly needy, the homeless, the family that might come to church with dirty clothes and odd smells and whose kids are unruly, who don't know how to behave because they've never been in a place like this? Are we willing to extend grace to all those people? To everyone, anyone who might walk in the door? You know, we're willing to go at times and visit those people with acts of mercy. To go into their place for a day or a week or a month. Drop off some supplies and build something. And, and I don't want to denigrate those things. But hopefully those things are making life better. But are we actually loving them? Yeah, it's an act of love. But I don't think it's what's in mind here. Are we willing to truly accept people as equals in our church, in our homes, at our tables? Or are those place spaces reserved for people in our tribe that look and smell and dress and act like us? He's assuming here in Colossians that we have relationships with outsiders. These are the questions we need to wrestle with. 
All right, so that paragraph in chapter 3 kind of handles what our lives are not supposed to look like. Sexual immorality, anger, slander, obscene talk, those things. So the question follows, well, what should our lives look like? And so in, and starting in verse 12, that paragraph gives us some of those things, some of those answers. And here's what it says. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, these things, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And be thankful for these opportunities that we have to love each other. I think it's what's going on there. So how's that working out for us? When we look at our lives, do they look like this? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, loving one another, being thankful for each other. In light of the ninth commandment, how's that working out? Let's look at that. It's in your bulletin. We read it earlier as a confession of faith. I think we're going to put it up here on the, on the screen. Let's kind of walk through what the confession says is the right understanding. Our catechism says it's the right understanding of how to apply the ninth commandment to our lives. Says, of course, the ninth commandment says, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And then the explanation is this. Therefore, I must not give false testimony against anyone. So I need to make sure that the things that I say about people are true. Okay, that's just the basic understanding of that commandment. But he continues, they continue to flesh it out for us. Meaning we twist no one's words. We want to be careful and gracious in saying and communicating the, the meaning of what the person said. Maybe they stumbled over a word, but we know they meant this. So we don't, we don't badger them for maybe saying something in a, in a way different than maybe what they, they meant to do. So we don't twist each other's words. No gossip or slander nor condemn or join in condemning anyone rashly and unheard. Okay, doesn't mean that we don't ever condemn untruth or something on other people, but we don't do it quickly, rashly, and unheard, meaning by rumor. I heard so-and-so said this, they should be condemned for that. We don't know. We didn't, maybe not even heard them say it, but yet this is how we often treat people, particularly online, right? You know? So, it says, rather, I must avoid all lying and deceit as the devil's own works. So when there's lying and deceit going on, it doesn't give a gradation there. Not big lies, not big deceit. Any lying, any deceit is the work of the devil. Under penalty of God's heavy wrath. What does that mean? It is sin that deserves condemnation. It is unrepentant lying and deceitfulness and false testimony and twisting one's words and gossip and slander and condemnation unrashly and unheard deserve the wrath of God. Then he gives some practical applications. In court and everywhere else, I must love the truth, speak and confess it honestly, and do what I can to defend and promote my neighbor's honor and reputation. Not the neighbor in our tribe, any neighbor. 
And other places where in scripture we're told, love your enemy and pray for them. They are your neighbor. And so here, the assumption has to be that we have to do what I can to defend and promote my neighbor's honor and reputation, even if they're your enemy. Wow. Okay. So how's that working out for you? How's that going? When you, you give an honest assessment of your life, you look in the mirror of your life, you look at your activity with your neighbors, be it in your neighborhood, at your workplace, in your family, you, you know, as you're shopping and doing commerce, all those sorts of things. Then you look at your, your, your Facebook page and your Twitter account and your Instagram and the, the websites you read and all the places that you go and all the things that you share and all the things that you can point people to. How's this going? You know, we might be a person who avoids dealing with people who aren't like us in the flesh. And so we can feel pretty good about that. But we sit behind a computer screen and we just blast all the fools that disagree with us because they're idiots. <coughs> Is that obeying the ninth commandment? I think we'd argue that it's not. Because we've got to be, you know, the question is, are we making sure that everything that we share, all those news articles and those videos and those memes and those blog posts and those news articles and those things and things and things, are we making sure that they're true before we pass them on? I've seen so many things shared on my Facebook feed, and thankfully I'm friends with people on the left and on the right and everywhere in between, and I know it's true on both sides, so I'm not picking on one person, one direction, one tribe. But the reality is we're in a toxic culture where we aren't even careful that what we're sharing is the truth. I've seen things shared from our former presidents that are absolutely taken out of context. And when you listen to it, has it just edited so that it says the exact opposite of what he's trying to communicate. And the call in the post is for condemnation of this person and this worldview. If that word is worldview, then maybe so. But the reality is, that's not what that video said. There's a particular pastor that I, that in, in our denomination who keeps getting accused over and over and over of being unbiblical with this 30-second clip playing on the internet. It's a 30-second clip that came out of an hour-long sermon. Guess what? It doesn't represent the whole. But for a 30-second clip, man, it's condemning. You keep sharing it. You're going, see, this guy is not a Christian. He shouldn't be preaching. He's, don't follow him. He's whatever. And the reality is, if you listen to the whole thing, he actually says the exact opposite of what's being shared. We're called to better. Less toxicity. More grace. More saltiness. Truth and love. We need to love truth more than we love our tribe, be that a political tribe or a religious tribe or a racial tribe or whatever it is. We need to see that the sharing, that sharing the truth about our enemies, whatever that is, whoever that is, is our most basic act of loving our neighbor. To misrepresent what someone said so that someone else might view them more harshly than they should is sin. It's bearing false witness against your neighbor. And it's true for the people who live on your street, if you're accusing them of falsity, it's true for the person who lives in the White House, if you're accusing them of falsity. 
and everywhere in between. We have an obligation to tell the truth. Not to tell half-truths or misrepresentations or any of those sorts of things. As Christians, we are called to be gracious. We've got to be able to commend everyone that we see doing good, even our enemies. The Shorter Catechism says that we should do what we can to defend and promote my neighbor's honor and reputation. All of our neighbors, even our enemies. Yes, even our political enemies. We've also got to be careful about making assumptions about people. I could put a list up on the screen right now of people who have gone to church here. And for the most part, I think all of us would go, those are good people. Man, they love Jesus. They are so sweet. They're encouraging. They're kind. And if I put their political affiliation out beside them, you might be shocked that they disagree with you and see the world from a different perspective. But while they were here, they were gracious and kind and probably the minority. And so they didn't point that out and make a big deal about it, but they also didn't change. And they would tell you if you talked to them that their beliefs are rooted in faith. So they think it's a correct, their view is a correct application of scripture. The reality is, if I put their affiliation on the screen next to their name, what you, what we need to ask right now is, would we view them differently? Would we think, well, maybe they're not as loving and kind and godly as I thought they were. And if that's the case, that's sin. That's bearing false witness against your neighbor. It's not assuming good of them. Can we have disagreements about politics and love each other? I've told y'all before, I think the ladies were talking about the other week, there's Scott Sauls tells a story in one of his books about uh, a guy in his church who was on the right end of the spectrum, the not the correct end of the spectrum, the right end of the spectrum. <laughs> you debate whether it's correct or not later. <laughs> he was a right winger. Goes to church one morning, big church. I think they got about 4,000 people in their church. Sees this guy, sees this car parked next to him with all these Hillary and Obama stickers all over it. And he's like, I am so glad there's lost people in our church coming to church today. There's lost people coming to church today. And so he goes to small group that night and he sits down at small group and says, I am so encouraged. There's lost people in our church. And somebody goes, well, how do you, how do you know? He goes, well, I saw this bumper sticker. and He starts describing the car and the small group leader goes, oh, that's my car. <laughs> What do we do? Where's our idols? What's our idol? Our politics? Our tribe? Our race? Our culture? What? Where's the line? What do we do? Where's the line that we draw that say, if you're on this side of the line, you're good. If you're on that side of the line, nope. Unacceptable. Where what God says is, that everyone is made in the image of God and is worthy of respect and honor, even if we disagree, and especially if they're Christians. <laughs> We've been talking about outsiders because that's where chapter 4 takes us. But chapter 3 is dealing primarily with believers who have all these differences and come from all these backgrounds and have struggled with all these sins. 
And there's a call to bear with one another in love, forgiving one another. We go, wait, we're all Christians. We're all in the same tribe. Why? Why is that so hard? Because we're different. Because even in the body of Christ, there's diversity. And it's not just racial diversity. There's also political diversity. There's also cultural diversity. There's also civic diversity. There's all these things in every way. Because people, God calls people from every tongue and tribe and language and nation to come to be one people. And when that happens, there's friction. And so he has to command us that even with outsiders, we should be gracious, seasoned with salt, knowing how to answer each other. I heard this week that Alexandra Pelosi, yes, that Pelosi, the daughter of the minority leader, is traveling around meeting conservatives, her polar opposites, politically speaking. She's doing a TV show, I think it's on HBO, where she's trying to make efforts to understand people who see the world different as her. Well, first, I think we should commend her for the desire to understand those who are different from her. I think that is commendable. We should be as gracious to understand people who are different from us. Second, we can learn something from her because she has said that one of the main things that she has learned in this exercise is this. And I quote her. Listen to what she says. It is hard to hate up close. She tells a story about this guy, this hard right winger who she's met. She goes to his home. She's got her kids with her who would be Nancy Pelosi's grandchildren. And he, somewhere along the way, and I can't remember the exact quote of what he said, but he basically said, all these left-wing crazies are like Nancy Pelosi's grandchildren. Forgetting that the person he's talking to is Alexandra Pelosi, and the little kids in the room are Nancy Pelosi's actual physical grandchildren, whom he has been playing with for the past hour and gets along with marvelously. (laughs) You get the irony? It's hard to hate up close. This passage is calling us to live life up close. Up close. Because it's pretty easy for me to scream on Facebook about something that I think is crazy. Some person that I think is crazy. Is wrong. But to actually sit at my table with them, share a meal with them, and look across the table into their eyes, the tone changes, right? Hopefully. You would think that's what he's calling us to. To actually have relationships with our neighbors. Because we remember what the great command is, right? Not this little command stuck off in the corner of the Bible that doesn't really matter much. But when they asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? He said... Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yes, good. And love your neighbor. The second, like unto it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. When we think about what that means, we can all pack a shoebox for Samaritan's Purse, right? That's fun. We can have a party. We all go to the Dollar Tree. We buy a bunch of junk. We send it to somewhere overseas. We go, we have loved our neighbor. But what about the person that actually lives in the house next door to us? I don't know my neighbors well. I got reminded of that this week. Neighbor to the left of me, we've lived there for almost six years now. 
They make no effort to get to know anyone. What a great excuse for me not to get to know them. <laughs> and I haven't. We've interacted with them a little bit. But I don't know them. He's dying of stage four cancer. The pastor next door has never even had a conversation with him about it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. When we think about up-closeness, how are we doing? I'm not doing great with it. I really like people who are a lot like me who want to be around me, who think I'm great. I can love them well. <laughs> but to love the people that are actually there, what is it? It's hard to hate up close. That's the main point of the sermon. I think the main point of this passage, we learn to relate in chapter 3 to those who share our faith, although we have differences. And then we learn to love, as chapter 4 tells us, this, with this outward face of love that extends even to our enemies, to those who are different, who are outsiders. Where does this motivation to love those who are different come from? Let's look back to Colossians 3.1. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What is he saying? He's saying, we love because He first loved us. We love because Jesus loves. Why do we love the people that are different, that are outsiders to us? Because even while we were still sinners, outsiders to God, outsiders to Jesus, He demonstrated His love by sending Christ to die for our sins. Remember what Ephesians 2 says? That we dead in our sins and trespasses, enemies of God, deserving the wrath of God. But God, who is rich in mercy, showed His great love for us by sending His Son to die for our sins. Why do we love those who are different from us? Because Jesus loved us who were different from Him. And we do that by remembering, by setting our mind on things above. What's above? The reality that Jesus has come and died for our sins and is now ascended into heaven and He's coming back to make all things right. There's hope. We set our minds on the hope of the gospel that's going to make all things right. And as we set our minds and our hearts and our sights on things that are above, We can look around us without the fear that our neighbors are going to reject us, that they're going to shame us, that they're going to ridicule us, that they're going to call us names for believing in some fairy tale called Jesus or whatever it is we might get. Because you know what? Their opinion of us doesn't define who we are. The fact that Jesus has shed his blood for us defines us, and therefore I can be secure in who I am and who God has made me to be and who God has redeemed me to be, and I can risk my reputation my comfort, my joy, my peace, to go into a hard situation and say, how can I love you? How can I love you? Will you 
who are so different from me that we wouldn't be friends, come sit at my table. <coughs> That's where it changes. It's hard to hate up close. Remember, we learned that from Alexander Pelosi. But it sounds a whole lot like Jesus. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. The gospel is the overriding motivation for us to fight sin. To love people well. Why do we come to the table every week? Because we need to remember that the gospel is true. That we're invited to his table. Remember, Jesus doesn't just put up with us. He doesn't just, eh, they're okay. He says, come and feast with me. Come and sit at my table. Come and enjoy fellowship. And so we do. We come. We trust that he's met us. Right where we were, he's redeemed us, even while we were still sinners. And he accepts us now. He longs for us to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, to be gracious and kind and salty as we interact with outsiders. It's an assumption that we're going to love the people around us. Let's go and do that. Let's love people well for the glory of Christ. Come and pray for us. Father in heaven, our inclination is to love people like us well and put up with everyone else. At least that's true for some of us and true for me often. Would you help us to die to ourselves and love our neighbors well? To sacrifice, to give, to risk that others might not just get to know us, but through us get to know you. That redemption might come to our neighborhoods to our Facebook pages, to our Twitter accounts, to our Instagrams, to whatever we're doing. That we would be bearers of truth to people and about people. We would not bear false witness, but in kindness, we would be gracious with those as we would hope they would be gracious with us to love them the way we love ourselves and the way that we hope to be loved. God, would you, through the gospel, change our hearts Help us to hate our sin, love our Savior, love our neighbor, that you might be known, that we might celebrate the diversity of your kingdom, people from every tongue and tribe and nation and language. And we ask that you might transform our church to reflect that beauty. Help us to be people who not only accept, but reach out to those who are maybe outside of our cultural tribe, particularly those who are believers. We would love them well and accept them, bear with them, forgive one another, live in repentance and faith together with people, and help us love outsiders that they might come to know you, that you might, through us, draw people to yourself and to everlasting life. We're thankful that that comes to everyone who believes, to everyone who calls in the name of the Lord, that salvation comes through the blood of Jesus. Thank you for loving us that we might love others. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.